But let's go before the Lord in prayer again. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before the throne one more time, Lord, to worship you because of who you are. For you are worthy of all glory and honor, even our Lord Jesus Christ, who is now seated at the right hand of power, having finished purification of our sins. Our Lord, we pray and we thank you for this wonderful and glorious gospel of our salvation. Uh, we now ask, Lord, for your grace in understanding. May you also grant grace to all those who shall hear, that they may hear that Christ is indeed lifted up in the heavenly place because he accomplished our salvation. We pray and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. John six twenty eight to 34. You got to hear something from John. <laughs> you got to hear something from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So anyway, we are in John six twenty eight to 34. Therefore they say to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent, whom he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign? So that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. That's the word of the Lord. Our title, Lord, <laughs> always give us this bread. Or whose bread are you eating? The true bread out of heaven. It is the most privileged opportunity and wonderful experience to be in the presence of Jesus. Because then one has access and opportunity to ask the right and important questions about God and salvation. But there are some people who, when they met with Jesus, asked him useless questions, foolish questions. About things that do not profit. In the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, we are told of this guy who showed up and asked Jesus to mediate over the spoils of his family inheritance. Hear this. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. <laughs> but he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? The Lord rebuked the man and essentially said, What is wrong with you, man? I do not get instructions from you and I was not sent to be a judge or arbitrator or mediator of things that do not profit. Things that do not lead to life. But he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed 
For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. So apparently, both brothers who were having this dispute over the inheritance were present. And they thought Jesus could settle this for them. What is the point? When you meet with Jesus, ask the important questions. Because he alone can answer them. Only Jesus can answer the important questions of life. He will not answer foolish questions. Questions about fleshly things. And there are no important questions to ask him than the question of how shall a sinner be made right before a holy and righteous God. So we have the story of the rich young ruler. We are developing our understanding of questions in the context of the gospel. Because the gospel is given to answer questions. We have the story of the rich young ruler who also came to Jesus with a question. The right question. And this is what he said in Luke 18. 18 to 23. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Good question. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. Liar. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. The rich young ruler asked the right question, the most important question, to the right person when he said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The rich young ruler at least realized that he needed eternal life. And even importantly, he realized that Jesus was able to provide an answer for him. But he obviously did not like the answer that Jesus gave. The answer that Jesus gave was a sovereign grace answer. A sovereign grace gospel. And self-righteous sinners do not like the message of free grace. And so they get offended. But here the sovereign grace responds by the Lord. One thing you still like. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor. Come, follow me. See that Jesus did not say you missed two or three things. Jesus did not say you missed the other half of the commandments. He said you missed one thing. He put everything under one heading of one thing is too like. This was not an instruction on doing good works, as Roman Catholics say. Far from it. This was not saying for you to be saved, you need to go and sell your things. That's not what Jesus was saying. This was an instruction on salvation, on justification. The question that he asked was the question of justification. What shall I do to have eternal life? How shall I be justified? The point was 
that the rich young ruler needed to empty himself of all his righteousness. Strip himself of everything that he had. Everything that he had confidence in. His money and his self-righteousness and follow Jesus. The rich young ruler still liked Jesus. And the one thing was the most and only needful thing for him. In Jesus is the fullness of what he was looking for. And he could only get eternal life by coming to Jesus. So Jesus was saying eternal life is not in doing things. You do not end eternal life by doing things. But in coming to him who possesses it. And who gives it freely. And by saying follow me. Jesus was not saying imitate me. I am your example. And you have eternal life. That's far from it. Jesus was saying, believe in me and I will give you what your own obedience to the law could not do for you. And you shall be complete. Follow me is to say, look to me for your salvation and not to yourself. Depend on me. Rest on me. Come to me. No time to go back and bury the dead. Look to me. Always. And so any who seek acceptance before God by their own obedience, and it doesn't matter when they think they started to obey. This guy comes and says, right from my youth, before I even lost my milk teeth, I was already obeying. That's what he says. Even from your youth, Jesus says, you still lack one thing. Jesus has one answer to all who think are so close. Because the man thinks that he's so close to salvation. He just needs that one extra thing to do. And he's done. He's so close. He's so close. He thinks he has 99%. And brother, it's 10. That's why I was poking you about the 1%. It came from this. But Jesus says, even if you have 99%, there's the one thing that you still like. And if you miss this one thing, you can't be saved. You need to be as good as God. That's the standard that Jesus was giving. Why do you call me good? God alone is good. So that sets the standard. So if you bring your 99%, Jesus is going to say, you still miss one thing, the standard of God. So to miss Jesus is to always miss the one thing. But to have Jesus is to have it all that one needs for eternal life. So what are we talking about? We are talking about asking the right questions when one meets with Jesus. And the Jews here in John chapter 6 are with Jesus and they're asking questions. They're asking very important questions. They said in verse 28 of John 6, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? The Jews, like the young ruler, asked the right question to the right person. But they also were not prepared to deal with the answer to this great question. Just as the rich young ruler was not prepared to deal with Jesus' solution to his answer. The rich young ruler wants to do something what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says to him, follow me. Believe in me. And this was too much. 
to ask of his flesh. So he went away sorrowfully. The Jews in John 6 also want to do something because like all men, they think salvation is had by them doing something. They want some work assignments to do. That they can look at their charts and mark them out and tick the boxes and say, I'm good. My kids are well behaved. My house is clean. My ducks are in a row. And my books are balanced. So it is well with me. Heaven catch me. Here I come. And heaven will never be the same again. As I had a preacher say at Whitney Houston's funeral. Heaven will never be the same. God could just not wait for her to come. And sing for him. But we need to properly answer this question if we are to have eternal life ourselves. Some have proposed and are still proposing that to do the works of God is to believe in Jesus plus their works that they do to be saved. They say grace alone is not enough for salvation. They are saying the cross was not enough for salvation. They are saying God was lying when he raised Christ because of our justification. And so we have to add, we have to work and add to Jesus our own works of obedience. And Jesus denies the teaching and says no. The food that endures to eternal life can only be given by him. It is food that cannot be earned by human merit or effort. Jesus says, no. There are no works for you to do when it comes to your standing before God. But there is a work that has to be done. But this work is not for you to do. It is a work that is beyond the abilities of the children of the fallen Adam to do by themselves. This is a work that God alone has to do for you through Jesus Christ. Jesus has to be the one who enters into your place as your substitute to do the works of God. And so he said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Not the works of God, but the work of God. And to believe in Jesus is a work that God alone performs for a person and in a person. When God performs a work in a person, he is not making that person righteous in themselves. When God performs a work in a person, he gives them a new birth. He gives them faith. And that faith is not meritorious. Faith has no merit in and by itself. Faith does not save anyone. Salvation requires more than just believing. It requires payment of sins. And someone has to do it. Salvation requires the cross. Salvation requires the obedience of Christ. And that is the only basis on which sin is forgiven. And so saving faith only looks to him whom God has sent and not to the works that we have done in his name. Remember in Matthew 7, if I remember, Lord, didn't we? Lord, Lord, didn't we? Do these things in your name. 
They were doing things, wonderful works, miracles, and casting out demons. In the name of Jesus. Works. In the name of Jesus. But the Lord rejected them. You workers of iniquity, lawless ones, depart from me, I never knew you. Because they missed the importance of whose work comes in this equation of salvation. It's only the work of Jesus, the work of God alone, that saves sinners. And when sinners are called to Christ, God calls them by faith to let them know of who they are in him and what he has accomplished for them. It's the height of pride and arrogance by sinners to say that Jesus did not accomplish salvation. Jesus is only by faith inviting us to enter into his own blessedness. You can't enter into Jesus' blessedness by drilling boreholes. This is a spiritual transaction that requires one who has been so qualified by God. And Jesus said of himself, on him the Father has set his seal. And his name is Jesus, and he shall save his people from their sins. So Jesus is the one who actually does the saving. Faith does not save, but it connects you with the one who actually saves. So gospel faith says, follow Jesus. Look to Jesus alone for acceptance. And so Jesus says, whatever men do by themselves is food that spoils. It is food that grows mold and is good for nothing. You can't refrigerate this food for eternity. And this is the same thing that Jesus said to them in John 6, 63. He said this. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. So salvation is not in doing things. Salvation is the life that God gives us in Christ. In John 3, the Lord said the same thing to Nicodemus. In John 3, 6, he said to Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. What that means is the flesh profits nothing. And Apostle Paul would come and say, It is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. It's the same theology. So the food that does not perish has to be given by him. It is food that endures to eternal life and is unlike the food the Jews or anyone could produce by their own obedience. Food is for sustenance of the physical, animate life. But the spiritual life is not sustained by eating bagels. Is sustained by a different kind of food. Not by eating Doritos. But by the food that Jesus gives. Salvation is a gift from God. Through Jesus Christ. Salvation is by grace alone. Because what you need for eternal life. Cannot be produced in polluted human factories. I don't know if you know this, but when they make computer chips, they make them in what we call clean rooms. And you, get, you see the people, they have these gowns. 
the environment in there is properly monitored. The pressure, the ventilation, everything, the humidity, everything is properly maintained so that there's no contamination by or from dust particles that will cause the parts to fail or malfunction. They do the same thing when they are manufacturing medicines. I've done this for a long time. You have special gowns. You cover pretty much your whole self. <laughs> your face, your hands, your feet, your mouth. They have to be covered. But if we who are evil know how to do these things, because essentially what we are trying is to maintain the integrity of what is being made. And if we know that, and we are doing these things for things that perish, why then do we think that the righteousness that a holy God requires is something that can be conceived in the depraved and sinful hearts of the fallen and be manufactured by the hands of fallen men. It's impossible. And God is teaching us by all these things that we do that we need to be holy before him. The righteousness that leads to eternal life cannot be assembled on an assembly line like we do with cars. To live eternally, you need more than being righteous. You need an everlasting righteousness, as Horatius Bonner would have it. You need the righteousness of God himself, a righteousness that does not run out. But if the Lord will leave you to yourself to work out your own righteousness, it won't last a few hours. If at all. Your gas tank can't even hold enough gas to last a month. And yet sinners think they can work enough righteousness to last eternity. It's impossible. God's holiness and righteousness makes it impossible for a sinner to attain eternal life by their own obedience. If God was like Dagon, no problem for you. Absolutely no problem for you. You die today, you go to glory. If Dagon has any glory to talk about. But because the Lord is holy, that's the problem. God is holy. And his holiness requires that certain things be fulfilled before you can make it into his presence. And this is done for your own good, not for his good, for your own good, that he may not kill you. And in Christ Jesus, God has given us an everlasting righteousness. And this righteousness is communicated to the elect of God. Not by their free will. That's nonsense. The righteousness of God is communicated to those that the Father gave to the Son before the foundation of the world. How do you know that you are the elect of God? You clean your house, Sister Baker. That's how you know. You believe in him whom he sent. And that is the work of God. As simple as it sounds, that is the hardest thing ever. Try to convince men that and say, God only saves you freely. No. I have to make it up with God before I die. I have to do something. No. Freely. Freely. Believe in him whom God has sent. But these Jews are not satisfied by Jesus' answer that the work of God is to believe in him whom God the Father sent. They want a sign. And Apostle Paul 
said of them in First Corinthians 1.22, for Jews request a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. So they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? <laughs> Since you are not wearing a uniform that says you are from heaven, you don't have an ID, we need you to authenticate yourself and your message by performing a sign. Do something that we may see and believe. But wait a minute. You are just not going to do anything. We are going to give you a standard by which we can measure you by. <laughs> Listen, Jesus. Listen, Jesus. Verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. That's the standard. You see, they are very purposeful. This is the standard. Yes. That's the sign that we need to see. So their order, which is the human order, is see and believe. Perform a sign, we'll see it, and then we'll believe. But God says, no, that's opposite. You believe and you see. And so they have the cart before the horse. They do understand, though, that Jesus is some special person. They, are, they can tell there's something different about this man. But the question that has to be answered is, is he of the same stature as Moses? That is why they're bringing the bread, the manna. So far, according to them, Jesus has not done anything that is close to what Moses did. And what did Moses do? Moses fed the whole nation of Israel, not just the 5,000 men and the children and women, 10 to 20,000 people. Moses fed the whole nation of Israel, not just yesterday, but for 40 years. 40 years, Jesus with manna in the wilderness. And you, Jesus, have to outperform Moses. You have to outperform Moses. Just feeding the 5,000 is not enough. So the bringing of the manna is very purposeful. It's by God's sovereignty. And by it, God is going to show them that Jesus is superior to all. Verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I said to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. And so Jesus, understanding where they were going with the thinking, says, Verily, verily, truly, truly, it was not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. So the Lord takes opportunity to correct their thinking and understanding of their history and says, Number one, it's God the Father, not Moses, who gave your fathers the manna. Number two, God the Father was still giving them food. Even now. And not only then. And number three. That the true bread from heaven is not manna. But Jesus himself. So he corrects their thinking. And since Jesus is the bread from heaven. He is superior to Moses. And to the manna that Moses gave. Manna was only a type and shadow of the true bread. The manna from heaven spoiled. If you still remember when they went and collected more than what God had told them to. It spoiled. But Jesus is the true bread from God that does not spoil. Manna was only for physical sustenance of life 
in the wilderness. But all those who ate it died. And if you too continue to eat this manna, you shall perish just as your fathers. Your fathers perished in the wilderness and you are still in the wilderness. It's very purposeful language. The wilderness is not there by accident. They perished in the wilderness of sin and that's actually what it is called in Exodus 16 verse 1. It was called the wilderness of sin. And you will perish too. The wilderness of the children of Israel was a type of sin. A type of our own wilderness because of sin. Because of the fall. And in this wilderness, which is the whole world, one needs provision from God or else they die. But the true bread that gives life to those who are in the wilderness has come. In the wilderness, the children of Israel thirsted and God gave them water. Water from the rock. And the apostle Paul would come in 1 Corinthians 10, 14 and say, and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. In the wilderness, they got beaten by fiery serpents. And God ordered Moses to raise a bronze serpent. And to that effect, Jesus would come and say, in John 3, verse 14 and 15, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him have eternal life. So the children of Israel had survived for 40 years, not because of Moses, that's what Jesus was, but because of Jesus who was with them. See that? It is him who was foreshadowed by the manna. It was him who gave the water. And it was him who healed them when the broad serpent was lifted up. So Jesus has always been their provision. And that's why Jesus will come and say, John 5, 45 to 47, we have seven sermons in there. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And so the saga continues. Jesus is interpreting for them their true history for what it truly was. So he tells them, not the manna, not Moses, not your obedience to the law. If you want life, I am the bread of God, that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. So Jesus, in this discussion, has moved from generalizing about food, to naming a very specific food and says, we are not talking about slushies here. Brother Stan, I'm going to get you a slushy when we get out. We are not talking about slushies. We are not talking about chicken salads, chicken McNuggets, no barbecue sauce, no sweet and sour sauce. He purposefully invokes the language of bread because it is supposed to evoke in their understanding the importance of bread. They all understand in this culture that bread is a daily staple. Okay? There's no Jenny Craig in this culture. 
It is not like here in America that one can eat bread as and when they feel like it. We have options. We have many food choices. But in this culture, bread was not an option. It was a must-have staple. And so the Lord says, I am the must-have bread from heaven. But this bread that Jesus brings is not from this world. It's not from this world. And that is important. The bread from this world can only satisfy physical needs. It is bread made from dead things. We make our bread from dead things. But this bread from heaven is not just bread. It's the living bread. And so Jesus is very purposeful to make that distinction. And remember, this is on the heels of the feeding of the 5,000. So when you go back to the feeding of the 5,000, it's very purposeful by God's arrangement because he intends to develop all this teaching. And so the Jews following Jesus is also very purposeful. Is God who is drawing them to him. That this conversation may take place. So Jesus says in verse 33 of John 6. That the bread that gives life to the world. Has to have two characteristics. Number one. It has to be the bread of God. Not the bread of Moses. And that removes anything that you can do. That removes any bread that you can bring. Number two. That bread comes down out of heaven. So the bread has to have location. It has to have its origin from heaven. And this was not given by angels as manna. This comes by God himself. What is that saying? It is saying if salvation is to be had, the source of it cannot be from the stock of this world. It's a very, it's a message that is very persistent. This world has no one who has bread that gives life. The stock of this world is contaminated with sin and is lifeless. Lifeless, as far as God is concerned. When he looks at the children of men, he doesn't see spiritual life. Unless they eat of the living bread. So the world is fallen and is condemned. And if there has to be life, there has to be a different kind of feeding. A different kind of bread and a different kind of mother. Nicodemus needs a new mother. Nicodemus, you must be born again. Where? How is that going to happen? You need a mother from heaven, Nicodemus. And you Jews, if you have to live, you need a different kind of bread. You need a different bakery. Okay. The bread that gives salvation can't be bread for moment. I have to tell you this, just in case you're thinking. I'll go and grab uh, some bread on my way home. Maya, Sister Baker loves Maya, or Costco. Maybe Kroger. (laughs) And and, and you can't clip coupons for this bread. Okay, you can't, you can't. This bread does not drop on the ground like manna. It comes out of heaven That is very purposeful language to say is bread that is being. It doesn't drop. It comes out. That shows movement. It it walks out of heaven. Because heaven is where life is. And if the world has to have life, it needs someone who brings it. And Jesus Christ is the one who brings the life of God and gives it to the lifeless. 
So heaven is the only place that is real spiritual life. And this requires one who possesses it to give it. So when we're talking about salvation, it's very silly for us to think that we have life by the things that you're doing. Because Jesus is denying that by saying, unless you have the bread from heaven, there's no life in you. And salvation is to have life. That's what this is all about. It's not about feeding people. It's not about giving money. It's not about raising kids. It's about possessing the life of God in Christ. And this bread is the bread of God and thus cannot be end by works. If anything, it's God who has to work it. It's the bread of God and it has to be given to you as a gift. But Jesus was also saying more than that. If this bread is the bread of God, then that bread is God. And that is a statement of deity. And it's supposed to remind them of God's promise in Isaiah. Listen to this. Isaiah 55, 1 to 3. Ho, everyone. I was going to be like Sander there. Ho, 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 ho. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. How do you buy without money, without cost? And yet the invitation is coming by. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? You see, the language again is couched on bread. And your wages for what does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful message shown to David. What, what is that invitation by God in Isaiah? That is the same invitation that Jesus is making. Jesus is saying, this is the bread that I promised and I am that bread I, and I am the God who promised you. And I'm the God who is inviting you to partake of this bread without cost to you. The people are being invited to come and get bread and water. The very two things that Jesus is offering the Jews in this text. And as I said, these were to be given by God without money. And without cost. And yet the Jews wanted to work for it and to end it. So Jesus is making a gospel call to them and telling them that He is the God of Israel who serves them freely and satisfies them. But still they did not get it. So they said to Him, verse 34, Lord, Always give us this bread. And on that night, the blood was beginning to rush in their veins on the promise of actually getting to eat this bread from heaven. <laughs> so they called Jesus Lord. Before they came, before, at the beginning they said Rabbi. And now they call him Lord. This is playing nice to Jesus so that he doesn't withdraw the offer of this bread from heaven. That's what they're doing. They are curious to eat this bread, just as their forefathers did. They can't resist the sound of actually testing manna. But they're thinking it's probably going to be in the same order as the manna. Their interpretation is, we are going to eat this bread and our physical bellies will never be hungry again. That's what they think. They have not risen above the fleshly. And yet Jesus is talking about bread that functions at a different level. But even with that, they can't let this man go without them at least testing this bread. <laughs> so they say, Lord, always give us this bread. What were they saying? 
They were saying, Lord, from now onwards, do not give us that barley bread. Always give us this freshly baked bread from heaven. Remember, manna was always freshly baked bread. It came on Friday. <laughs> Payday on Friday. Sister Baker, you need to go collect. Give us this freshly baked bread from heaven. And it is a serious misunderstanding. They have fallen into the Samaritan woman situation of misunderstanding. Hear this again from Sister Sarah Samaritan. We haven't talked about her in a long time. John 4, 10 to 15. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Again, those elements, living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? She only sees the impossibility of what Jesus is saying. You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. And Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him. You see, the water has to be given. It's Jesus who has to do the giving. And that translates to salvation by grace. Shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And Sister Sarah says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. That's her interpretation. Sister Sarah Samaritan is not thinking about fetching water from the well. She is thinking, no more going to the well in the heat of the day. No more dealing with all these women who hate me because I'm always getting married and getting remarried. And I am on my sixth man, my live-in. So that will save me the embarrassment of having to come in the heat of the day and try to hide from all these women from the city or from the village. Give me so that I don't have to come again. That's her thinking. But Jesus explains and teaches her out of her confusion by making her to discover who Jesus was. And so the Lord slowly guides her out of her confusion. Jesus is a sovereign grace preacher, slowly just opening the doctrines of grace to her. And when she finally discovers who Jesus was, she was overjoyed. The waters that lead to eternal life were already springing up in her. Okay? And we see the same misunderstanding with Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he comes and he thinks he can make some statements about Jesus. And Jesus is not really impressed by that statement. As nice as, and polite as it may sound to us, Jesus is not impressed by it. And so he says to set things straight for Nicodemus and says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? <laughs> of course not, Nicodemus. Jesus, you're out of your mind. He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said, how can these things be? Yes, how can these things be? 
But Jesus teaches Nicodemus and he lifts Nicodemus out of his misunderstanding, out of his confusion. And when the confusion had been lifted up, guess what? Nicodemus shows up and he defends Jesus. And he comes to the grave and he helps in the burial of his Lord. So the Jews are speaking with Jesus in John 6. And they have a misunderstanding. Lord, always give us this bread so that we don't have to cook anymore. We want this better food. This, in our day, organic food. Give us this organic food. And we want it now, and we want it continually, not just for 40 years, like what Moses did, but for as long as we live. So they're expecting some physical food. But Jesus shocks them again and says, in verse 35, that will be our last verse. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. Jesus corrects their thinking by redefining what food he was talking about for them. He introduces the I am statements, which are statements of deity, and we shall talk about them next week, the Lord winning. So he tells them that he is that bread which God the Father gives. He is the bread that comes out of heaven, and he is that food that when eaten, endures to eternal life. And so, this bread is called the bread of life. It's a bread from heaven. It's the bread of God. It's the living bread. And Jesus is that bread. Which means, there's no other bread that compares to it. And gives what it gives. And because it is the bread of life, those who eat this bread will not hunger. And that is, who have complete satisfaction. And if you want to put it in the context of salvation, those who eat this bread by faith means they do not have to work for their salvation. Jesus is enough for your salvation. That's what he is saying. Because remember the question, what shall we do to do the works of God? And Jesus says, eat this bread from heaven and you shall have complete satisfaction. So the eating of this bread apparently is not a literal eating or an ingesting of the body and flesh of Jesus as the Roman Catholic teach but is a coming to him, it is a believing in him. And the one who believes in Jesus, Jesus says, will never thirst again. And this bread then not only provides food for the hungry, but it also provides permanent satisfaction for thirst. What kind of bread is that? Both the bread and the water are found in the one person. And when consumed, they give everlasting satisfaction. Jesus used here a very strong emphasis. He, he, he made a strong emphasis to his statements and says, He who comes to him and eats his body, believes in him, will never hunger and will never thirst. Will never, never, ever hunger. And if the Jews really understood what Jesus was saying at this point, this would have been the appropriate time to say, Lord, always give us this bread. But no, this is actually beginning to drive them crazy. <laughs> it's beginning to drive them crazy. But let, let us talk some theology. We need to connect what this really means. The Lord Jesus said, He who comes to him 
will not hunger or thirst. Hunger or thirst for what? Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be filled. So the hungering and thirsting are for righteousness. And when you eat bread, you always need to drink water. It's very purposeful construction by the Lord Jesus. There's no one who eats their staple and not have a need for water. You always eat and you drink. That is what completes a meal. And Jesus is saying he supplies both. He's talking to his sufficiency in his provision, in salvation. Jesus provides both and that is the completeness of his provision and the satisfaction that he brings. Our physical hunger and our thirst are God's reminders to us that we need something more permanent. They are constant reminders that we need an everlasting righteousness. That we need Jesus. That's why we get hungry. There's no reason why we have to be eating every day. I mean, seriously. If God determined for us, he could have us eating once every so often. Like snakes. Snakes can go six months by eating. There's no reason why you have to be cooking every day, Sister Becca. From now onwards, cook only once. Yeah. But this is what the Lord is teaching. He is teaching that those who are in this wilderness suffer from the consequences of sin. They thirst from the fiery bites of the fiery serpents. The fiery serpents. And because of that, those who belong to him, those who have been born again from above, hunger and thirst for righteousness. The hungering and thirsting for righteousness is not for everybody. It's only for those who have been born again. So this hungering and thirsting also was given by Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 2 and 3, when he said, we're getting close. For indeed, in this house, we groan, we thirst, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. That's completeness. That's satisfaction. In this house, in this body, the physical body is the housing for the soul. But even in this housing, those of Christ long to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. We long to get clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And when we have been so clothed, we shall not be found naked. There shall be a completeness of our covering when the sin in our bodies shall be removed permanently and completely from us. And then we shall be fully conformed and clothed in the righteousness of Christ alone. So those who are born again, those who are born again, if you go and read the Sermon on the Mount, it gives a picture for those who don't understand the gospel that this is something that men just do by themselves. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And people think, oh, I'm hungering for righteousness and so God is going to save me. No. He is teaching what becomes of a person who is born again. Those are characteristics of those who have been born again. They are the only ones who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So, those who are born again long to have their nakedness covered because they feel their nakedness. 
So to be born again means to feel your nakedness before God. Is to feel your inadequacy before God. To feel that you can't work your own righteousness by yourself. And the one who feels their nakedness runs to Christ that they may find their covering. They feel hungry. And so they also run to Christ to be fed. And they feel thirsty. And so they run to Christ for water. And those who have so done will never be hungry again. And will never thirst again. And that's the promise from the mouth of the Lord. And so it is important that we ask. It is important. It is important. Whilst we are here. That we ask the good and relevant questions. That pertain to our eternal state. What shall we do to do the works of God? This is the work of God. Believe in him whom he has sent. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and come, follow me. Follow me. Don't stay there. <laughs> That's the emptying of righteousness. You have to bring nothing to Jesus if you have to get the life of Jesus. What is the Lord saying? Jesus is saying he is the all and in all. There is nothing that man can do to end salvation. We need to hear that again. There is nothing that a sinner can do to end salvation. Salvation cannot be end. Salvation cannot be completed by what we do. It's impossible. It's just impossible. It cannot be done. It has to be given. And he has given it. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Amen. <laughs> Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before the throne again, our Lord, to praise you and worship you. And thank you, Lord, for the bread from heaven, the bread that is your Son, Jesus Christ. The bread that satisfies our hunger and satisfies our thirst. And Lord, we thank you for giving us this bread and enabling us by faith to lay hold of this bread. And Lord, we are just thankful for this gospel. For this is the only hope of man. Salvation by grace alone, in Christ alone. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.